0: Welcome back to PRSSA Podcasts. Our guest for today's PR with the Pros episode is Dr. Caroline Heldman. Dr. Heldman is the executive director for the Representation Project, as well as a professor and department chair for the Critical Theory and Social Justice Department at Occidental College. I got the honor of meeting Dr. Heldman at the Alturas Institute's Conversations with Exceptional Woman Conference, where she serves as the board chair. Dr. Heldman is also the president of the Board of Directors at the TEP Center and has co-founded End Rape on Campus, Faculty Against Rape, and End Rape Statute of Limitations. Dr. Heldman has published six books, and her research specializes in media, the presidency, and systems of power. Hi, Caroline. How are you? I am doing
1: marvelously. How are you, Nicole?
0: I'm great. I'm so glad you could join us on this call today.
1: My pleasure. Thank you for inviting
0: me. Of course. Okay, well, I just read off a long list of some of the organizations you're involved with, and I've got to ask, how do you have time for it all? You know, I am
1: a a staunch practitioner of the Franklin Covey method of managing my schedule, so everything is Tetris in, um, and I, you know, work long hours because I love work. My work um, every aspect of it is meaningful, whether it's working with students or working on gender justice or working with survivors of sexual violence or working you know, with the Civil Rights Museum in New Orleans. There's not an aspect of my work that I don't absolutely love. And I know it's such a cliche uh, when people say I, I don't work a day in my life because I love my work, but I really do. Um, it's also important to note that uh, I decided not to procreate. So I don't have... That second shift that a lot of women have. Um, my uh, my babies are are my projects, uh, and you know it's something that we don't often talk about. The fact that if you're a parent, you are especially if you're a woman, where there's an assumption that you're going to be the primary caretaker of children, the primary caretaker of uh, older adults. You know, parents. Um, it's. It's something we don't talk about, but it's absolutely work and it shapes our lives in profound ways. And that's something, of course, that the Representation Project is trying to raise awareness about.
0: Absolutely true. Well, I love seeing the passion that you have for everything that you're involved in. So what do you enjoy doing in the spare time that you do have? Uh, I do
1: martial arts. I'm a fourth degree black belt in Taekwondo. I also train jujitsu and uh, I've recently gotten back to uh, weight training. So I'm trying to get ripped, Um, you know, doing doing uh, heavier and heavier lifts uh, every month in the gym. So uh, lots of working out um, yoga, walking, Uh, I go skating a lot, roller skating. I'm terrible at it, but uh, it doesn't stop me from doing it and falling on my butt. Uh, I also love dancing. So, you know, most weekends I'm finding a 70s or 80s club to go dancing or salsa dancing. Um, So really taking all of the good parts of life and making sure they're woven in.
0: I love that. You definitely have to make sure that you have a way to unwind at the end of the day and just Still have fun. Even if you love your job, it's good to have a balanced life.
1: Absolutely.
0: Well, tell me about the Representation Project. What's the mission of the Representation Project and just what is it? Well,
1: our our vision is a world that is free of uh, harmful gender norms and stereotypes. And we were founded by Jennifer Siegel Newsom uh, back in 2012. 2011. Uh, you may know her. She's a documentary filmmaker. She made the very popular searing documentary Misrepresentation uh, about the representation of girls and women in media and how that, uh, you know, is both a reflection of our, our lack of value, but also inhibits our leadership. Um, And then she came out with A Mask You Live In in 2015, which is about healthy masculinity and how traditional norms of masculinity harm boys and men. Uh, It's a very loving, empathetic look uh, at that topic. And she came out with a third film, The Great American Lie in 2019, that looks at how uh, race and gender have long influenced, who can access the American dream and who, who has less access. And then our most recent film uh, that just came out in 2022 is called Fair Play. And it looks at uh, gender inequality at home and how you know the idea that, w- that women are the primary caretakers and the amount of time that we spend in the home working that second shift, often you know, working outside the home in, a, in compensated work, um, how that affects and, and harms children um, how the imbalance harms relationships, family units, and society more broadly. So it's a call for a care economy that that looks at that as work um, and recognizes it as such and recognizes the long hours that are being put in and also an invitation for, you know, men to become more involved in caretaking. So our work focuses on using media in order to raise awareness and shift the culture.
0: That's awesome. I did get to see Fair Play, actually. I watched it twice, um, and I loved a lot of the ideas that you guys brought forward in that um, documentary. I thought that there were really interesting topics discussed in that. And I've also looked into the Representation Project, and I've seen a lot of successful campaigns implemented by the Representation Project that have led to change in society. What's been your favorite campaign?
1: Yeah, that's a tough question, Nicole. We've run a few uh, Respector Game focuses on better representations of uh, women athletes during the Olympics and and beyond the Olympics. Uh, so we find a lot of sexism in the way that you know women athletes are covered. But my favorite campaign has got to be the hashtag Not Buying It campaign. Um, and for folks who you know are a little younger, you might not know that um, we uh, shifted the culture in terms of Super Bowl ads. So Super Bowl ads used to be Super sexist, uh, and have just you know sexually objectified women. Women were mostly erased, but when they did appear in ads, it was in incredibly sexist roles. Whether it was as you know someone doing the dishes or someone you know bearing half of her breasts and having a cat fight with another woman these ads were were ridiculously sexist and i think it's a, a good exercise to go back in time and just look at like classic super bowl ads to see what the norm was and so our not buying it campaign really targeted um the sexism of super bowl ads uh and from 2012 to 2013 and really launching in 2013 we started to call out ad makers and we saw an immediate shift um uh, move from featuring sports car racer Danica uh to from being you know like naked in a commercial to actually being like you know agentic and and racing a car and and you know doing what she does which is um, you know, as, as a professional race car driver. So, just to give you like a really obvious example of um, an ad, you know, content creators that absolutely shifted in response to the Not Buying It campaign. And we actually just put out a study um, last month, right around the Super Bowl, uh, that looked at how representations have changed since that time. So, we see this abrupt shift from a 2012 to 2013, where things got much better. And they didn't just get better for women, right? They got better for women uh, who are otherwise marginalized, right? And they also got better for people of color. So our work is all intersectional in the sense that when we're talking about women, we're talking about uh, also you know, women of color, queer women, disabled women, older women, fat women, and just to be clear, fat is not an insult. It's a descriptive term. We're reclaiming that. So um, our work looks at uh, women through an intersectional lens. And we find that it that for most of uh, those groups, advertisements have improved when it comes to the Super Bowl. And that's important because... You know, forty percent of the country is watching the Super Bowl, and it's fifty percent of the audience is women, and a lot of kids are watching it. So, um, it's a it's a major kind of moment where media shapes culture.
0: That's awesome. So, if you don't mind me asking, what were some different elements of campaigns, such as the hashtag Not Buying It campaign, that you leveraged to really lead to this campaign gaining momentum?
1: Yeah, great question. So um, I think, so the biggest kind of easy component is the hashtag, right? So making it easy for people to join the conversation. And just for a little context, this is just a couple of years after Twitter goes live in uh, 2009. You've got Facebook Facebook. you know, going, going live four years earlier, Instagram, 2009. So these are relatively new platforms, um, and hashtags have only been around for a couple of years, but not buying it. Um, we, you know, we put it out into the world, um, through the feminist blogosphere, through feminist networks. Um, We coordinated with feminist organizations prior to the launch so that everyone was launching it at the same time, one of the important elements. Um, But I think the the key element was making it easy. Uh, You could find content and simply post about it, right? So we set up a portal initially where people could submit. Uh, content and and then hashtag it, not buying it, and we would repost it and then realize, wait, we don't even need that. People can just pull images from ads, from TV, from films, and we made it broadly applicable, right? So you could really call out sexism or intersectional sexism um, in any form of media. And so I think the interactive component made it a success um also um targeting it and launching it right around the super bowl uh, gave people a concrete action so even though you know that it was easy and we expanded it beyond the super bowl um we actually had a targeted campaign that was at, that had a specific action that people could could easily do um, while they're a captive audience, right? So maybe you're a football fan, maybe you're not. Maybe you're watching you know the the Super Bowl for the ads. like about half of the viewers are. they they prefer the ads to the actual gameplay. Um, but this downtime uh, really allowed you know, a hashtag to blow up. and that's exactly what we saw.
0: I love that. And the representation project has also put out a yearly state of media report card. What goes into this report?
1: So we have a professional research team at the Representation Project looking, you know, again, at, that, at representations of gender, race, ability, sexuality, body size, age, and their intersections. Um, and so we uh, have a professional coding team that analyzes data. Uh, we look at at how often various marginalized groups are showing up. And then when they are showing up, we look at how they're represented. Is it in stereotypical ways? Is it with demeaning tropes? Uh, And so uh, a lot of our work is, you know, ongoing throughout the year. Uh, The State of Media report, we also use data from other uh, places. So what we do is we combine our data with data from the Gina Davis Institute, from the Hollywood Diversity Report out of UCLA, the Annenberg Inclusion Initiative, Uh, We use some data from Common Sense Media, we use some data from the Center for the Study of Women in Television and Film, uh, Martha Lowsen, Dr. Martha Lousen's work at SDSU. Uh, So we pull together all of the available data on representations in film, television, video games, music, and advertising. And it gives you a pretty complete snapshot of how different marginalized identities are represented across these different platforms. And what we find is we've made significant progress in certain areas and and less so in others. Um, And we do our annual State of the Media Summit, which is taking place uh, in the spring in a month and a half. And we will be analyzing you know, what, what we can do better, right? What we can do to improve the state of media. Uh, and it doesn't matter what form of media it is, uh, you know, whether it's focusing on you know, pre-production of ads and making sure there's inclusion there or looking at the you know, the editing stage of, of a major uh, release film, uh, we weigh in. So we go beyond the report to actually go and, and offer advice and offer guidance to content creators at major studios.
0: Totally. And I was reading through it a little bit and I was pretty um, surprised to see some of the numbers and others you know, made sense. But overall, I thought that the state of the media report card was a very compelling call for diversity within public relations and media in general. And I just wanted to hear, what do you think some of the most shocking findings from this report are? Some of the most shocking findings, I would
1: say, are the continued underrepresentation of people with disabilities and fat Americans. Um, so, people with disabilities make up about one uh, in four Americans. And we look at disability in terms of uh, physical disabilities, cognitive, communication, and mental health disabilities. So, um, one in four Americans. Uh, has a disability and you know about 80% of Americans will be disabled at some point in their life. So this is something that affects a lot of folks but on even a good year you're getting very few representations of disability in ads and film and television. Um, It's just you know in the in the single digits and that's surprising to me given the fact that you know the more people see themselves represented, the more likely they are to uh, purchase that content, right? Whether it's go to a film or watch an ad and buy a product. Um, We have really good data that advertisers and content creators are leaving a lot of money on the table by not being more inclusive. Um, I would say that, you know, representations of fatness are another area where we have a lot of work to be done. Um, About 40% of the American public uh, is fat, according to the Centers for disease control CDC. And when you look at representations, you know, it's just a fraction of characters. And when they do show up, it's often as you know the punchline of a joke, um, or they're they're used as the this, you know, sassy sidekick, or the, the tropes and stereotypes with fat people are really awful. Um they just we we it is socially acceptable to represent fat people in incredibly degrading ways that it would not be socially acceptable to represent other marginalized groups. And so um, we're trying to make progress in terms of those representations. I will say some good progress. We've seen great progress in terms of race representations. Uh, we've we've rich, uh, achieved racial parity in most domains, meaning that you know, 38% of the American population are are BIPOC, um, and we see about that in terms of characters in advertising, uh, television, et cetera. Um, gender, we've made strides; we still have some ways to go. Right? It's still, um, you know, women are 51% of the population, but only about 40% of characters in in major, you know, in, in ads, film, TV, and even less so in leading characters. Uh, but the most marginalized groups are really people with disabilities and their representations, and fat people.
0: That's so interesting. That's definitely something that I think public relations professionals and anyone working in the media really needs to be aware of as they're creating content. You know,
1: it, it, there's we there's so much we can do if we're if we're just thinking about it. You know, people might be listening to this and thinking. You know, for example, oh, well, why don't we want more fat representation? Well, because, you know, fatness it, diets don't work. Body size is not something we we tend to to moralize it. And there's a long history, uh, a long racist history of why we're such a fat phobic society, for example. Um, and if you really look into it, um, changing your body size, we we actually know this dieting doesn't work. It doesn't work. We have study after study. Finding um, that it's very difficult to shift your body size. Um, also, um, you know, fat Americans are are 40% right of the population. Um, they're a very large group, and yet they rarely see themselves represented. And when they do, it's often as a punchline. So even if you had you know total control over body size, which we don't, uh, but even if you had total control, it's a social justice issue, right? We can't treat members of our our community this way we can't it shouldn't be acceptable to to do this and so how do you address this well i I think one of the the primary ways is just putting it on the radar of good people because i think most people are pretty good right we're we're not the villains in our own story we want to be good people but oftentimes we're just not even aware that we're excluding for example fat people from advertisements and once that's made known, and once the idea of you know better representations and more humanizing representations uh, is put on the agenda, then all of a sudden it happens. I've seen this happen again and again. Like, hey, you don't have any uh, older adults, Americans ages fifty plus, in any of your ads in this portfolio. Gee, light bulb goes off. Let's just cast the you know we can shift these characters over here. So um, you know in in all media sectors. Oftentimes, it's just a matter of like the light bulb going off, that click moment that people have, that they should be thinking about this particular marginalized group that they haven't thought about before. And I think we've all you know, learned to think about race and gender, but there are a lot of other categories of marginalized folks that we should be thinking about as well.
0: Totally. And that's just a basic element of lifting up humanity and supporting the people around us. And so I really think that's important to be aware of. So thank you for the work that you've done to raise awareness for this and hopefully we can keep it going. So have you faced much pushback from the ideas you present about creating a more inclusive space within the media and if so how have you handled those difficult interactions?
1: We do a lot of work in writers' room in writers' rooms in you know C-suites of production companies um in Uh, you know, with ad agencies. And yes, we definitely receive some pushback about like being a checklist. Um, And so the way in which we think about inclusion is not so much like this individual piece of content, but rather, what is somebody being exposed to across the media ecosystem? So, for example, uh, we get a lot of pushback from, you know, if we're looking at At representations of gender, race, ability, sexuality, body size, and age in one ad, you're not going to get all of that in one ad, likely. Um, So we get a lot of kind of pushback that that this is you know restrains the creative process, and what we have done in response to that is develop tools that are about looking at the broader landscape of what you're producing as a company rather than just one piece of content. Also, um, we. Uh, frame it, and I think this is a really important way of framing it, as opportunities for inclusion. So for example, we have um, uh, something called the rep score, where we identify characters that don't have an assigned identity for a particular thing. So for example, um, let's say disability, like here you have no uh, disabled characters represented in this ad uh, and there are seven characters for whom, you know, you could, any one or seven of them, you could show with different types of disability and it wouldn't change the story arc. Um, And so we we frame it as being um, these moments where you can increase inclusion and it ends up actually making the, the content more created because it gives them variables to play with that they may not have thought about. But it really is about opportunities for content creators to make their own decisions about inclusion rather than kind of a top-down checklist approach.
0: I think that's a really great perspective to take. And I know that you guys really do a great job at handling all of those conversations and public relations professionals in general need to be prepared for finding the most productive way to build relationships with all audiences, including those that disagree with them or those that may look different than them. So what advice would you have for public rela- relations students who may find themselves in positions that tend to receive pushback from others?
1: Haha, <laughs> Well, um, I think uh, that anyone who's going into PR probably has pretty thick skin or they'll get it at some point, right? Um, and it, it, it's a difficult job in many ways, but one of the ways I think is that the culture is constantly shifting and getting better about the language we use and the ways in which we treat people and how we think about treating people. So for example, I do think that um, sizeism is the next big social movement, right? The movement against fat phobia. Um, I think the way that, you know, as, as we've discussed, the representation of fat people is, um, you know, it's unconscious. It, it, it shouldn't be this way. And whether it's, you know, airlines making seats uh, that are uncomfortable for everyone, but especially fat flyers, uh, whether it's, you know, the ways in which fat people are constantly facing sizeism and fat phobia and anti-fat hatred in public spaces, um, for example, our knowledge of that has improved in recent years. And I'm guessing in 10 years, the way we talk about fatness will be completely different than the way we talk about fatness today. And I use this as an example of the constantly shifting environment that PR professionals are working in, where the language is changing, the standards are changing. Hopefully, you know, advocates are, are pushing Uh, to have, you know, better language and and better treatment and more humanizing treatment of human beings. And so um, staying on top of that is, you know, a vital part of PR professionals work, uh, the right language use. And by right, I don't mean like some strict moral standard. I'm talking about trying to be better about how the language we use creates the worlds we want to live in. And it's difficult to stay on top of this because we are constantly advancing. And I, I say this to my students who are not necessarily PR professionals, although some of them go into that esteemed profession, um, that while they you know they feel very confident in, in judging others and the language they're using now, um, in, in a couple of years, they're gonna be outdated unless they stay on top of it. So um, I think setting oneself up uh, as a PR professional who is on the cutting edge of what comes next, right? Um, that is, I think a great way to address that pushback, um, also bringing it back to empathy and humanization. And I know that sounds so cliche, but at the end of the day, it's actually about the effects, the harms on marginalized people. When you're, when you're talking about, you know, using more inclusive language or phrasing things in a certain way or not appropriating culture, um, it, it really is about, living in the world you want to live in. And so as a PR professional, being able to to create that imaginary space for the people you're working with, like this is the world I want to live in, and this is how we get there. And so framing it in much more of a positive way rather than a moralizing way that tends to you know, cause defensiveness.
0: Absolutely. That's great. Well, on a slightly different note, before we start to wrap up, I got the honor of seeing you speak at the Alturas Institute's Conversations with Exceptional Women conference, and your rhetoric and nonverbal communication skills had me captured. So as someone who seems so good at it, do you have any public speaking advice for students?
1: Ah, that's a great question. Um, You know, I was a child performer. And so I think what you're probably picking up on, and thank you for that wonderful praise, Nicole. That's so sweet. Um, it, so I am not afraid of human audiences. Um, and, and that's probably what you're picking up on. Um, I don't need to picture people in their underwear in order to feel more comfortable. Although maybe that's fun. I don't know. Um, I know what I have to bring to the table and I know the limits of my knowledge. And I think that that's, that's maybe something, right, that you get the, the more you learn about a subject or more you become an expert on something, what you're really doing is just defining the contours of what you don't know. Um, and so being really I, I'm comfortable with my knowledge because I know what I don't know and I'm not gonna go outside of that and I'll be the first to say, actually, I don't know. I couldn't Google that for you, uh, but I I don't happen to know that particular thing or I'm not an expert in that. Um, So I think the first is is having confidence in what you're speaking about. Um, I am an over preparer, which maybe isn't really a word. I prepare for everything. I do not I I don't go into things cold, Um, you know, today. Uh, I looked at your questions and I thought, oh, I want to answer this this way, this way and this way, right? Um, I'm not going into it cold. Um, I know what, what my expertise is and I know what it isn't. So I have confidence in what I'm going to respond to and, and what I'm not going to respond to. And I'm, and I'm happy to be confident in, in saying that. Um, also, um, I view the audience as you know, my kindred spirits. Um, it's not competitive. I'm not above them. Their collective wisdom is far greater than one person sitting on stage. I recognize that. I recognize that in my classrooms. And so uh, it doesn't scare me. I'm just joining the conversation. And I happen to be the one doing the speaking at that particular moment. Uh, I think the last thing I would, would suggest is, you know, the imposter syndrome is a very acute thing for a lot of particularly women, but also like first gen college students, especially women of color, uh, people of color. If you feel like you don't belong in a space, um, then you're probably suffering from imposter syndrome, right? And it's as one uh, former student explained it to me, it's this idea that that this hand, you don't belong here. And at some point, and you've bamboozled and fooled all of these people. And at some point, a big hand is just going to come up and pluck you out. Um, and I, th- I think maybe that's a universal part of the human condition that oftentimes you know, we all, and maybe not all of us, some of us have huge egos, but, you know, we, we often don't feel like we belong in spaces, but it's more acute for some of us, right? It's more acute for some of us, for example, like women and especially women of color are not considered to be possessors of knowledge. And so when you're in an industry like I am, where knowledge is currency, then you walk into a room and there are all sorts of expectations based upon how you look and your gender performance um, about whether or not you're a possessor of knowledge. And I, you know, I get all the time, oh, wow, you're so smart. But I'm like, right, for a blonde woman, sure. I'm, um, You know, there, there's a low expectation there. Um, but coming into it and feeling like you don't belong there, it's recognizing that that narrative is fiction, right? Um, you have come into this space, you are prepared, you know what you're talking about. It's likely that you know more than anyone in the audience, any single person, um, but collectively they probably know more. And that's okay. Uh, it's not like, you know, one person's going to have a corner on truth and for whatever reason you've been called to speak in front of an audience. So somebody thought you had value for that audience. So make the most of it. It's this like grand moment where you're given a, an opportunity to help assist, serve your kindred spirits, and they're right in front of you. And even some of them who aren't, you know, your kindred spirits yet will be by the end of it. I mean, I look out in the audience sometimes and I see people like eye rolling or, or you know, having resistance to something that's being said because I'm often, you know, on some more of the radical edge of when it comes to, to race or gender politics. And at the end of the day, um, I see myself in them and they're going to be my best friend by the end, you know, at some point, it might not be today, but at some point, um, you know, I will win them over um, because my humanity is their humanity, and I see myself in them.
0: Those are great concepts to keep in mind. So thank you for sharing that with us. Um, and I just wanted to move into a fun lightning round of questions real quick. So first, what was your dream job as a child?
1: My dream job was to be a NASCAR driver, a racer, which I pursued for a little while.
0: Did um, you really?
1: I did. I went uh, to, you know, I worked on Pete Muser's crew, uh, NASCAR, when I was in college. Um, I did uh, race car driving courses at Portland International Raceway near my house. Uh, and I, you know, I have a Prius, but my, I also, you know, have a, a 78 Camaro and a Dodge Challenger. And you know yeah, so... That was my my dream job. Um, it did not have the impact on the world that I wanted to have. And so I am not racing cars for my profession. I'm not gonna speak to whether or not I'm racing them on the streets of Los Angeles at night.
0: That's awesome. Well, I won't ask about that, but that sounds like a really fun interest. And what was your favorite place to visit? Or what is your favorite pl- favorite place to visit?
1: My favorite place to visit is New Orleans, Louisiana. It's my favorite city in the world. I haven't been to all cities, but I've been to most of the big ones. And uh, New Orleans is, you know, this amazing blend of like, you know, African cultures with Caribbean cultures. It's the northernmost Caribbean city in the United States, I would say. Uh, It's just, you know, Black New Orleans in particular is uh, not to commodify it, but it's just... The people, the music, the food, the culture um, is just, you know, the most amazing experience um, that I've had in my lifetime. And so I, I go to New Orleans quite a bit and, you know, have um uh, have a house there and work in nonprofits uh there. I'm the uh the board chair of the new Civil Rights Museum there, the TEP Center, and I work with uh, Miss Leona Tate who's one of the four little girls who desegregated the Deep South in, in 1960, so I just feel honored to um you know work in the Lower Ninth Ward and uh visit that community as often as I can.
0: I love that. I love that. And lastly what is one of your favorite movies, shows, or documentaries?
1: You know, I have so many, but I, I'm catching up on Queen Sugar, uh, and Abbott Elementary is top of list. Um, Never Have I Ever is one of the best shows I've seen in terms of a variety of representations, and it just, it just makes my heart happy. It's so good. Um, Poker Face uh, with Natasha Lyon, she's Uh, doing some fantastic representations of older women, which I find to be remarkable. You can see it's, you have to have more than just a good storyline for me. I also need good representation. Um, I would say, you know, episode three of The Last of Us is probably the best hour of TV I've seen in many years. Um, And of course, I I love our new film, Fair Play, right? Looking at gender inequality in the home. Um, And Nina Minkus has just come out with a great documentary called Brainwash, which looks at... Uh, what Laura Mulvey identified in, in the 1980s, the, the male gaze in cinema, she looks at how it's still very much alive today uh, through an intersectional lens. So I would say that's that's what I'm currently consuming this particular week.
0: <laughs> I love that. That's a great list of things for me to check out right after this. Well, that concludes all of the questions that I have for you. Thank you so much for just joining us on this call and being on this podcast. I really appreciate the time that you took. And I loved hearing all of the wisdom that you had to share.
1: Nicole, it has just been my honor to be with you. I love, love, love working um, with, you know, mentoring and helping young women along their life path. And I wish that I had known what I know now, which is, you know, nobody's going to discover you obviously make your way through life, but also all of these other people did it before you and they just did it by nose to grindstone. And yes, we face, you know, all sorts of challenges along the way. Um, But there's a whole community of women and people who want you to succeed. So
0: it's, it's
1: great to join you today.
0: Well, thank you for being one of those women to champion everyone else. Thank you again to Dr. Heldman. And thank you to our listeners. Stay tuned for more podcasts coming soon.